Getting a great night's sleep is fantastic, and you can get that with a Sleep Number bed. The Sleep Number bed lets you choose your ideal comfort on each side, so it's the perfect bed for couples. With optional Sleep IQ technology inside, it tracks your sleep and gives you personal insights. You see how life affects your sleep and how sleep affects your life. Sleep Number has been ranked highest in customer satisfaction with mattresses by J.D. Power for two years in a row. And for J.D. Power award information, visit jdpower.com. My Sleep Number setting is 90. My Sleep IQ score last night was 92. And there's never been a better time to visit a Sleep Number store. Save 50% on a limited edition bed during the Ultimate Sleep Number event. Plus, Queen C2 mattresses are now only $599.99. You'll only find Sleep Number at any of the 500 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find one nearest you. Call 1-800-390-9100. Tell them George Norrie sent you. Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. Welcome back to Coast to Coast. Dr. Jessica Zitter with us, MD, is an expert on the medical experience of death and dying. She specializes in critical care and medicine at Highland Hospital in Oakland, California, graduate of Stanford University and Case Western Reserve Medical School, completed her residency in internal medicine at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, part of the Harvard Medical School as well. Her book, Extreme Measures, Finding a Better Path to the End of Life. What a subject, Jessica, something that a lot of people are scared about, aren't they? Yes, I would. I would say that we sort of have a collective fear uh, and denial of death in this uh, culture and in many cultures. Why? Why do people? Why do people fear death so much? You know, I almost wonder if it's if it's evolutionary uh, and genetic that that we really just want to live forever. There are Greek myths going back, you know, tens, many, many, many years. However many years it is talking about this perpetual life and, and what it and, and, and this desire for it. So I think it's something that's been with us for a long time. Now, our fear of death, of course, and uh, there is that tendency, as you believe, to ignore it. Is that very smart to do? Well, I, I would definitely say not. I think that, uh, in, you know, my front row seat in the intensive care unit I see the results of people ignoring it all the time, and it's it's pretty devastating. Um, uh, you know, people really end up not knowing what what is is the power of what we can do with these machines that can keep bodies alive. And many people really wouldn't want it if they knew. And I think we just assume that more technology is going to help us and it's going to be better. But in fact, that's not the case in many, you know, especially for dying patients or patients with serious illness. What was the catalyst uh, that pushed you into writing Extreme Measures? You know, I've been writing for years. Um, I'd say, I mean, I've been writing since I was a kid, but I did a lot of writing in my early years of my career when I was going in, you know, when I'd gone into intensive care medicine. And I was very excited at first about the idea of, of really just prolonging life and saving life. And I started to see that in many cases, um, I was actually causing more suffering, and it was very distressing to me. So I started to write really to deal with my own moral distress. But as I went forward, and if you'll you know, see in the book, I, I found a new type of uh, medical training that I incorporated into my ICU practice, which is palliative care. Um, and this is really a reasonably new subspecialty, which focuses very much on communication and, and um, also managing symptoms, and, and, and it's a terrific 
adjunct to what I do in the ICU, and I started to feel much more hopeful and um, see a new way of doing this that I felt was working much better for my patients. And so then this book really just came out of that experience of going from, in a way, from this sort of dark place to a much more hopeful place. What do you think is a better way to die, Jessica? Just to drop over, keel over, and die, or to <laughs> you know be in a hospital room and just kind of wither away? You know, I think it's so depends on the person. And what I've learned in my many years of doing this now is, you know, people are pretty different. And what's most important, what I would say is a good death really is one that is is most in line with what a particular person's preferences and values are. Um, So I think that's why we need to be communicating a lot more about that particular um, aspect of, of life. As you were studying this, Did you come across uh, things where you would make recommendations to people who are about to die? Well, I mean, what I really try to do is not make recommendations. What I really, my ideal situation is to educate people about their particular medical condition and about the particular treatments that were, you know, that are are in front of them that, that might be things that we could do, the benefits and the burdens of those treatments, and then have them decide uh, based on what is really important to them about how they live the rest of their lives. So I don't necessarily like to make recommendations. Sometimes I do, but, but most of the time people come to it on their own once they've really thought about their own personal values and preferences and, and, and understood the realities of what lie before them. What do you think about uh, prolonged living through, like, life support? You know, I... Well, let's let's put it this way. There, I, I would say we know from data that we do it all the time. There are many, many people, and a rising number, especially now as the baby boomers are starting to, you know, age, that more and more people are dying this way. We've got this this term called chronic critical illness, which is quite a large population of people, um, the chronically critically ill, and these are people who really do have profound debilitation and and you know require at the very least, institutional support until they die, or many um, remain tethered to machines. And, you know, this is, a, this is, in my opinion, a public health crisis, and this is a big part of why I do my advocacy. I really feel like people need to know about this. But the other piece of data that we have is that, you know, most people don't want that. If you, if you look at surveys, and there's lots and lots of surveys, and more and more coming out all the time, People want to die at home. Eighty percent of people want to die at home, but what percentage do you think die at home? Not that 20. many. <laughs> Twenty. It's a very, very it's low. Uh, low percentage. The other thing that's interesting is that, you know, we know that when patients have access to more information about end-of-life issues and about the options ahead of them, they always choose, or most patients choose, a much lower level of technological intervention. And, um, in fact, they don't die sooner. Um, and so... There's, there's quite, you know, this is, I think that we know that people don't want to die that way, and more and more people are dying that way, and I just think we need to raise awareness about that. Well, especially when they prolong it, because if that's the way you're going to stay alive, you know, with an apparatus on you, uh, and you cannot live without it, well, who wants to live that way, Jessica? Well, and that's, I mean, it's a very important point, what you just, what you just said, with an apparatus on you. That, let me describe it a little bit more a little bit more um, in detail, because I think it's important for people to understand what it means to have, for example, chronic critical illness. Um, It means that many of these patients are attached to breathing machines. um, And by that point, it's more of a permanent connection through a tracheostomy through the neck. 
they usually have feeding tubes that go into their stomachs. They're usually, you know, in a bed, lying flat. They're often uh, have their arms tied down because dislodging tubes, which is, you know, is a very risky and dangerous thing. So a lot of these people have their arms tied down. And, you know, you can imagine that patients, their families, as much as they love them, can't really stand vigil for that you know, I mean, it, it, you're, to stand at the bedside of somebody like this is, is I think, not only extremely difficult from a, a physical and financial perspective, but in terms of an emotional. And so a lot of these people just end up really dying in this very isolated environment um, of an institution attached to machines. The name of the book, of course, is called Extreme Measures, Finding a Better Path to the End of Life. Now, is there indeed a better path to the end of life? I absolutely think so, and I have seen it, and, you know, my book is filled with stories of people who've really taken their own lives into, into their own hands instead of going along what I call this end-of-life conveyor belt. And to me, it's extremely uplifting to see people who have said, no, you know, I want to take control of this and do this my way instead of just going down this default path of, you know, high-tech treatment, which is what we do. And I've seen it shift many times and really go from something that could have been a really, tech, you know, highly medicalized death to something that's much more uh, home-based and comfort-based and family-oriented. So to me, that's a success. But for some people, you know, some people really feel that, you know, even if they understand all the details of what this chronic critical illness could look like, they still feel that they would want their bodies to be kept alive. And I... I respect that. Um, we, we do that a lot. Um, most of the time we do it without people really telling us to do it. We do it by default. But it, certainly if someone said to me, you know, this is really important to me that I be kept alive as long as possible, I'd, I'd say, okay, to, you know, to, we'll, we, in this day, in this modern medical era, we, we, we will do that if you ask for it. And um, it's not my choice, but that, that, would, that is some people's choice. Have you ever seen a case, Jessica, where they kept somebody on life support and then miraculously they recovered from whatever ailment they had, and they didn't need it anymore. It, it, it's extremely rare. Uh, I've seen it a few times in my career. Um, it's usually in the context of a reasonably young person who's in a coma, either from an accident or a very serious infection. Um, I've never seen it happen uh, in somebody who, uh, for example, has terminal cancer and who has been dying and come in, you know, with very serious illness and then gotten sicker and sicker and gotten into the intensive care unit. I've never seen those kinds of patients uh, turn around and all of a sudden, you know, recover to the point that they're going back to their lives. With, uh, with this kind of end-of-life treatment, what do most doctors say about this? Would they be in support of what you've just said? It's an interesting question, and I, I um, looked at the data on this. Doctors uh, don't want to die this way. Um, we've got there's a study that I that was done in I think 2013 um, out of Stanford, surveying a bunch of young doctors about what their preferences would be if they um, came, you know, had a terminal illness, and and 88% of them said that they would want to be made DNR, which is do not resuscitate, which means that if, you know, they, when it, when it comes time that their organs start to fail, you know, let me go peacefully. Don't put me back, you know, on aggressive machines and bring my body back on machines. 
Um, and, and yet, if you look at another study that looks at a bunch of can, a, a geriatrics pra, uh, practice in Canada, where there were about 500 surveyed geri, geriatrics patients in this practice, only 8% of them had ever had conversations with their doctors about this do not resuscitate. So doctors don't want to die that way, but um, their patients don't even have the chance to opt out. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.